0: Well, good morning, Calvary Bible Church family. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 20. We're going to be in verses 30 and 31. So John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. This is going to be part seven of our mini-series on what to do about doubt. We've, for the past six weeks, been studying this topic, what to do about doubt, and we'll wrap up that mini-series in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. I wanna kinda remind you of the little journey that we've been on in this mini-series. In week one, we studied John chapter 20, verses 24 through 25, to see what doubt does. We looked at the nature of doubt in the example of Thomas. Then in week two, we studied the next two verses, verses 26 and 27, to see what Jesus does to help someone out of their doubt into faith. And then in week three, we studied verses 28 through 29 to see what faith does, how faith responds to Jesus. Then from there, we branched out beyond the Gospel of John to look at some of the important things that the rest of Scripture says, about the problem of doubt, and in week four, we studied Satan's schemes, how he tries to distract, to deceive, and to destroy. Then in weeks five and six, we studied the Savior's sovereign strategies, how he draws someone to faith, and we saw how he seeks to use us as his witnesses to convince people by creation, by consciousness and by credibility. Then to convict people of their sin by the commandments, by the conscience, and by catastrophes. And then to call people, to give the gospel call, to call people to the cross, to the church, and to the great commission. So today we're returning to the gospel of John for our seventh and final message in our mini-series on what to do about doubt. Read along with me as I read John Chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, which is not only the conclusion to our mini-series on dealing with doubt, it is also the summarizing purpose statement for the entire gospel of John. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book but these have been written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in his name. These two verses are really the conclusion of the Gospel of John. Chapter 21 is an epilogue which focuses on the personal aspects of the Lord's interactions with Peter and then with John himself. But in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, the Apostle John is giving us a summary of the argumentation and the purpose of the entire gospel. John, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us here the Lord's purpose for this book of divine revelation. And that purpose is so that you may believe, so that you may believe. The Holy Spirit moved the Apostle John to write this book in order to bring you to faith, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that's the Greek term for Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. As we've been talking about throughout our study of this amazing book of Scripture, to accomplish that purpose, John has focused his gospel on three groups of sevens. Seven miraculous signs, which point to who Jesus really is. The testimony of seven key eyewitnesses. And then the seven astounding I am statements, which Jesus makes. Using that phrase, ego me," I am, that refers us back to the sacred name of God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. So in this seventh and final week of our series on what to do about doubt, we'll be reviewing and summarizing what the Lord has taught us throughout our two-year journey through the Gospel of John so that you may believe the Lord has presented to us in the Gospel of John seven signs, seven witnesses, and seven statements. So I want to begin by reviewing with you, going back through this journey we've been on the last two years, going back to John chapter 1, and we'll work our way through the book, looking first at the seven signs which the Holy Spirit inspired John to emphasize in this wonderful book of divine revelation the first sign is in john chapter 2 which is jesus turning the water into wine at a wedding in cana this is recorded in john 2 1 through 11 and we learn from this sign that jesus has the power to create the elements of wine were not present before jesus acted. They were present after he acted. He created those elements and we learn therefore that he has the power to create. This is pointing to who he is. He is the creator. This also reminds us that he has the ability to transform, to change things. Just as he transformed the water into wine, he can transform a sinner. He can change your life. I think this miraculous sign also shows us that Jesus places a really high value and importance on marriage. He chose to perform his first sign at a wedding. Marriage is God's design. Marriage is something that is sacred to God. It is the building block of society. And so Jesus emphasizes the importance of marriage by performing his first messianic sign at a wedding. The second sign is when he healed the royal official's son, the nobleman's son. If you remember, there was a man who came up and told the Lord that his son was dying and the Lord says to him, go for your son lives. And at that very moment, the son was healed. But Jesus never went to the Son. He simply, from a long distance away, says, your Son lives, and it was so. And this shows us that Jesus is not bound by distance. He is Lord of time and space. He can speak in one place and his word is fulfilled in another. This is not the actions of a mortal. This is the action of God. This also reminds us that Jesus can save from death. This noble man's son is dying and Jesus rescues him. He heals him. And I think this sign also tells us that Jesus cares about our problems. Jesus is busy in ministry when this man comes up and Jesus takes the time to listen to this man's Sorrow, his problems, that his son was dying. He listened and he cared. The third sign is when Jesus heals a lame man in John 5, 1 through 17. If you remember, this man was all alone, didn't have anyone to help him. And Jesus has compassion upon him. And I think that's one of the key lessons from that sign is that Jesus has compassion for the lonely, for the helpless, for the abandoned, for the suffering. He has compassion and mercy upon them. This sign also tells us that Jesus has the power to restore that which is broken and that he is the co-creator with the Father and the Spirit because tissue which did not exist moments before Jesus spoke now exists. And this Lame man now is able to walk. The one who formed man from the dust of the earth is able to speak and turn a lame man's legs into healthy, strong legs. The fourth sign is when Jesus fed the 5,000 in John 6 1 through 14. Again, this reminds us that Jesus is the creator. Bread and fish, which did not exist, now exists by the word of his power. It's also a reminder that Jesus can multiply our meager efforts. He takes the loaves and fishes, some little boy's lunch, and he multiplies it to accomplish his purpose. That is a reminder to us that when we make ourselves available to the Lord, he can take the meagerness of our abilities and efforts, and he can sovereignly multiply them to do great and marvelous things. The feeding of the 5,000 is also just a reminder that the Lord cares about our needs and he meets our needs. The account starts by simply noticing that the people were hungry. The Lord fed them. He met their needs. The fifth sign is when Jesus walks on the water in John six fifteen through 21 And remember the disciples, these experienced fishermen, were terrified and about to sink, and Jesus comes to them walking on the water, and his presence calms their fears, and then his word calms the sea. Jesus can calm our fears. He can also command the wind and the waves one of the other gospel writers says, the disciples marveled, saying, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? He, as the creator of all things, commands all things. He is sovereign over the laws of nature. Unlike us, as created beings who are under and subject to the laws of nature, he is the creator, both of nature and the laws which govern them, he is sovereign over them. He has authority even over the weather. The sixth sign is when Jesus heals a man who was blind from birth. Remember, they asked the Lord, well, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sin or the sin of his parents, right? In other words, they had some sort of concept they thought of karma or something like that. Well, someone must have done something bad for this bad thing then to happen. Jesus says, oh no, it was neither him nor his parents who sinned. This happened so that the works of God could be manifest. In other words, Jesus is teaching the principle later articulated in Romans 8 that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Jesus is sovereign even over seeming tragedies. He causes all things to work together for good and he shows by healing this man that he can give sight to the blind. The one who can grant physical sight to a man born blind from birth can give spiritual sight to the blinded minds that Satan has blinded. He can do it. The seventh sign is raising Lazarus from the dead. And remember, before the Lord raises Lazarus, he comes first and he sees the family weeping and it says that he weeps with them. Even knowing that he was momentarily going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he does not bypass their mourning and move straight to rejoicing. They are mourning and he enters their mourning with them. Uh, Not long ago, I had a you know, an annual, sometimes biannual uh, cardiology appointment. I have a very minor uh, heart defect that just needs to be monitored and and gives me some some symptoms at times. And so I was just there getting a, a checkup and was speaking to the cardiologist. And, you know, he knew I was a pastor and, you know, was kind of inquiring, you know, about stress levels. And I was happy to report to him, this this church is a loving family and the team that we have is so marvelous that I'm rarely under anything that I would characterize as stress. But what does create some physical strain is the constant entering into other people's grief. The Lord taught us that we are to mourn with those who mourn, and in a church our size, there's almost never a week in which someone hasn't lost a loved one. They're not in mourning for someone or something has gone on in their lives. And of course, for the one going through that valley, the mourning and the grief is very intense as I seek to enter into that with them. I experience a, a very low level compared to them of grief, but I do try to genuinely enter into that. And so on a weekly basis, I'm experiencing a low intensity of grief, but also I'm sharing with people's joys. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And so yesterday as I celebrated a young couple with a young couple their wedding vows, I had the opportunity to rejoice and share their joy. That is the Christian life. We enter into the lives of others. We rejoice when they rejoice. We weep when they weep. Their lives become our lives. Their problems become our problems. Their their triumphs become our triumphs. This is who Jesus is and who he calls us to be. Jesus comes to the tomb and he weeps with those who weep and then I'm certain after he raised Lazarus from the dead, then he then also then rejoiced with them as they rejoiced. But the raising of Lazarus also teaches us that Jesus has power over death itself. He can speak, and a dead man in a tomb will come forth. His words give life. And his raising of Lazarus is a sign to us that when he says that he can give us eternal life and that he can raise us on the last day, that he has the power to do what he says he will do. These are signs which point to these truths. Now in our text, back in chapter 20, verse 30, John says that Jesus also performed many other signs In the presence of the disciples and in chapter 21 verse 25 he says there are also many other things which Jesus did which if they were written in detail I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written so these seven miracles are just a fraction of the miracles that Jesus performed in the presence of a multitude of eyewitnesses but these seven miracles are the ones which the Holy Spirit inspired John to focus on. And all seven of them are, John says, signs, like a road sign which points to something. All seven are signs which clearly point to the narrow gate and to the road which leads to life. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, Verses 13 and 14. He says, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Enter through the narrow gate. We are all as sinners on this broad road to destruction. But then the Lord puts up these signs, seven signs that are pointing to a narrow gate to Jesus Christ. And Jesus stands at that gate as it were and says, "Enter the narrow gate. Go on my way because it's the way that leads to life. The one that you're on leads only to destruction. Beloved, in the book of John, God has given us seven clear signs that point to an inescapable conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have eternal life. So the question for you is, have you followed those seven signs to their inescapable conclusion? Have you reached the conclusion that John articulates in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31? These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Well, if you miss the seven signs, God, who is patient, also gives you seven eyewitnesses. In the Gospel of John, John is, as it were, almost as if in a courtroom going to call seven eyewitnesses to give their testimony that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world, and that those who believe will have life in his name. And the first witness that John calls is John the Baptist. Look at John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34, and let's read together the testimony of the last Old Covenant prophet, John the Baptist. John 1, 29 through 34. The next day... He, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. This is the preexistence of Christ. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The testimony of John the Baptist. The second witness is Nathanael. In chapter one, verse 49, Nathanael testifies. He says to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel the testimony of Nathaniel. The third witness is Moses. Look at John 5, 45 through 47. Jesus is confronting religious people who did not believe in him, and he says, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus himself calls forth Moses as a witness that he is the Messiah and the fulfillment of all of the foreshadowing that took place in the law of Moses, in the tabernacle, and in the sacrifices. As John the Baptist says, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All that Moses wrote about all of those things were all pointing to Jesus. The fourth witness is Peter. John chapter 6 verses 68 through 69. Remember the Lord had this huge crowd and he began to teach the truth and he taught one truth and some people were offended and left. Taught another truth, more were offended and left. And as Jesus keeps teaching, people keep hardening their heart and turning away because the truth is offensive. Jesus says, the world hates me because I testify against it that its deeds are evil. And as he testified against them that their deeds were evil, and as he taught the truth, they were offended by the truth and they left. And so we get to John six sixty six. It says, as a result of this Many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the testimony of Peter. The fifth witness is Martha in John chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. Her brother has died. She's talking to the Lord and Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And that is, Of course, the question for each of us, do you believe this? Martha answers and gives her testimony. She said to him, yes, Lord. By the way, you want to know how to become a Christian? Martha just demonstrated it. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And Martha responds simply, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Martha is the fifth witness. By the way, this is one of the internal evidences of the authenticity and historicity of Scripture, and I want to explain to you why. Back in those days... As sad as it was, a woman's testimony was not considered valid in court. Women's testimonies were completely discounted by the culture. So if you were making something up and you wanted to convince other people that your made-up story was true, you would never put forth as one of your seven witnesses a woman. You wouldn't do that in that culture because their testimony was considered to be disregarded. But here we have several things happening. First, God himself is saying that women's testimony is valid. It's a shot across the bow of a sinful culture. But secondly, it is evidence that she was selected as a witness because she was an eyewitness of the raising of Lazarus. She was there when the Lord said, Lazarus, come forth. She was there when her brother came out of the tomb. She was probably one of the ones who unwrapped the grave clothes off of him and then sat down to eat a meal with her now-alive brother who had been dead and in a tomb for four days. She is an eyewitness. The sixth witness is Mary Magdalene. And if it was shocking in that culture that Martha would be put forth as a witness, it would be even more shocking that Mary Magdalene would because this was a woman from whom Jesus had cast seven demons. She was a troubled, a disturbed, a demon-possessed woman, and she had been saved by Christ, and now she is put forth in Holy Scripture as the sixth witness, and by the way, the first eyewitness of the resurrection. John chapter 20, verse 18 Mary Magdalene has seen the Lord, and it says that then she came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And then she passed on to them his message. The first witness of the resurrection, and the sixth testimony presented in the Gospel of John. The seventh witness is Thomas in chapter 20, verse 28. We call him Doubting Thomas, but he's actually the seventh witness, the seventh witness of faith in John 20, verse 28. After Jesus has said to him, Thomas, stop being unbelieving and start believing. Verse 28 says, Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Again, this is an example of how to become a Christian. You are there in your unbelief as Thomas was. You're in your doubt, you're in your skepticism, you're in your unbelief, and the Lord calls out to you and says, stop being an unbeliever. Stop unbelieving, but start believing. And you answer. You answer as Thomas answered and simply say to him, my Lord and my God. Seven witnesses brought forth one after the other, giving testimony to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you also as they may have life in his name. Now throughout the old and new Testaments, there is a principle of jurisprudence that is stated over and over and over again it, that is this principle let every matter be confirmed by the testimony of two to three witnesses. It is stated multiple times in the Old Testament. It is repeated multiple times in the New Testament. This is a core principle of biblical jurisprudence. Why? Because sometimes people lie. And so it is necessary to confirm facts by multiple testimonies. Let every matter be confirmed by two or three witnesses, but notice the Lord has given us a lot more than two or three witnesses. John presents not just two or three witnesses, but seven. And seven, by the way, in ancient Jewish culture was considered the number of completion. So the point the Holy Spirit is making through the pen of the Apostle John is clear. It's not just that we have been given adequate testimony in order to believe. It's not just that we've been given compelling testimony in order to believe. It's that we have been given complete testimony, sufficient testimony, all that we need in order to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Well, what if someone misses the seven signs and then disregards the seven witnesses? What's left for them? And what's left is the most powerful proof of all, and that is the words of Jesus Christ himself. The Bible says in the book of Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So if you miss the seven signs, you discount the testimony of the seven eyewitnesses, consider now the seven statements made by Jesus Christ, the Statements that we call the I am statements, where Jesus says, I am, and then gives his identity. The I am is an allusion, a reference back to how God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. When Moses asked for God's name, the answer given is, I am that I am. And now Jesus is going to come seven times and say, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am He. These statements are going to reveal who Jesus really is. Who did Jesus say he is? Not who this scholar or that skeptic or this religion or that religion, who did Jesus Christ say that he is? And the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John make it unmistakably clear that Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be God, that he claimed to be the long awaited and promised Messiah. And that he claimed to be the only way of salvation. The one who came from heaven would return from heaven and will raise up believers on the last day in the resurrection. Seven I am statements which show who Jesus is. The first of them is found in John 6, 35 through 40. Where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Listen to his words. These are not the words of a mere mortal. John six thirty five. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. No mere mortal says that he can give you eternal life and that he himself personally will raise you up on the last day. This is the words of someone who is claiming to be God. I am the bread of life. I came down from heaven, Jesus says, and at the end of time, I will personally raise you up and I won't lose any that the Father gives to me. The second I am statement is in John 8, 12. Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Decide not to follow Jesus. You already are walking in darkness, but follow him and you have the light of life, a light which gives light to the whole world, the light of the world. The third statement is in John 10, 7 through 10. Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You're on that broad road to destruction. And here is Jesus saying, look, I am the door. If you enter through me, you will be saved. I am the savior of the world, Jesus says. The next statement is in the very next verse, John 10, 11, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, right? Here comes the approaching shadow of the cross. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He's contrasting himself as the owner of the sheep with those who are not the owner of the sheep. This is the claim of ownership over all creation. He is the owner of the sheep, not a hired hand. The hired hand, verse 13, he says, flees because he is a hired hand, and he's not concerned about the sheep. But verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life. For this sheep. In verse 27, he says, "'My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand.'" My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He's saying, there is no hand in all the universe stronger than mine. Then he points to this, to the Father. He says, there is no hand stronger than the Father's. No one can snatch you out of my hand. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. the all-powerful son, the all-powerful father, one. No one stronger. This is a claim to deity. The fifth statement is in John 11, 17 through 26, where as we read earlier, Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. You know, there are many people who are like, well, I think Jesus was a good moral teacher. A well-spoken rabbi. Can you imagine a mere mortal, a teacher of any kind, but just a mere man saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Again, a clear claim to deity. And he asked Martha, do you believe this? The sixth statement, I am statement, is in John 14. Where Jesus says, look, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house, right? I'm going to leave this world and prepare a place for you in a different world. And then I'm going to come and receive you to myself so that you can be where I am in heaven. Not a mere mortal. He says, you know the way where I'm going. Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And by the way, notice that Jesus was not a universalist. He did not teach and he did not believe that all roads lead to God. He said, there's a broad road that leads to destruction, and many go on it. There is a narrow gate and a narrow path that leads to life, and few find it. And he not only said, I am the door, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And how many come to the Father? Not through him? No one. No one comes to the Father but through me. The 7th I AM statement is I am the true vine, John 15:1. I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. He talks to them about abiding in him because he is the source of life and then he says this in verse 10. If you keep my commandments you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be made full. He is the vine and we are the branches. And his joy flows to us. So abide in the vine. I am the true vine. So seven statements all beginning with that phrase, Ego in me, I am. And the seven I am statements clearly show that Jesus claimed to have come down from heaven, to be one with the Father, to be the Lord of life, to be the only way of salvation, to be the one who personally raises up believers on the last day. He is Lord, he is God, he is the Savior. So if you are a doubter or a skeptic, I want to urge you to be intellectually honest with how you view Jesus you need to consider the claim that some make that Jesus is just a legend. Not only is there the mountain of evidence that we spoke about in former weeks, but if the apostles were just making all of this stuff up, why would they be so countercultural to their day in the way that they did it? And why would they all be willing to die for something that they knew was a lie? Jesus is not just a legend, he is the Lord of all. Maybe you conclude, well, Jesus is just a liar. He said he could raise people up on the last day. He's just a carpenter. Couldn't even raise himself, right? You deny the resurrection. You think he couldn't even raise himself, much less you. If Jesus claimed to be the savior of the world, but isn't, and he knew he isn't, then he was just a liar, just a fraud. If Jesus claimed to be the savior of the world and really thought he was, But he isn't, then he would be a lunatic. So those are your options. Legend, liar, lunatic. But if Jesus is who he clearly said he is, then he is Lord, and you must bow the knee to him. C.S. Lewis, in his classic book, Mirror Christianity, wrote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, well, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That, C.S. Lewis says, is the one thing we must not say. It's the most illogical option. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, C.S. Lewis says. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us and he did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a liar, and consequently, consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Legend, liar, lunatic, or Lord. As C.S. Lewis said, you must choose, and everyone does. So who do you say Jesus is? He's listening right now. Who do you say he is? In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, it says, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, and this is the question posed to you. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say Jesus is? You know, one of the saddest things in our day is the millions of people who say they are Christians. And you ask, them, well, who's Jesus? Oh, the Son of God. Then watch their life. And it's obvious they don't believe that. Because if Jesus is the Son of God, you will follow him. You will obey him. You will love him and you will worship him. Who do you really say that he is? Is he Lord, is he God? Peter responded to that question by saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 17 says that six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain and he was transfigured before them. The Shekinah glory of God shone through Christ. And then God spoke from heaven. It says, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. This is what God is saying. Jesus is my Son. Listen to him. And that is my prayer for each and every soul in this room that you will heed the voice of the Father. Jesus is his beloved Son. He is well pleased with his Son, so listen to Christ. Are you listening? And are you responding? Over the past seven weeks, we've seen that the Lord has given us an astounding amount of reasons to believe. But as we conclude this miniseries on what to do about doubt, I want to simplify everything down to just three C's. Three things you can remember and use as you share the gospel with unbelievers. First, that creation tells us that God exists. Secondly, that conscience tells us that we're sinners who have broken his law. And third, that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Creation testifies every day and every night that the Creator exists. Our conscience tells us day and night that we are sinners who need a savior and then christ comes and says i am the way and the truth and the life will you enter through the narrow gate if the lord has opened your heart to believe and you're wondering well what how do i do that how do i respond i Mentioned earlier, it's as simple as what Martha did. Yes, Lord, I believe. Or what Thomas did, saying, my Lord and my God. Or as Romans ten nine says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then verse 13 says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So let me ask you. Have you confessed Jesus as Lord? Do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Have you responded to his call when he says, don't any longer be unbelieving, but believing? Have you called on the name of the Lord? We've been reminded today that in the Gospel of John, we've been given seven signs, seven witnesses, and seven statements, which all point to the inescapable conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that believing, you may have life in his name. Do you believe? Lord, my prayer is that there would be no soul who comes in unbelieving and leaves unbelieving. Lord, may you open blinded minds. May you open hardened hearts. May you give life to those who are dead in sin. Lord, you said to Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but believing. I pray that if anyone came into this room unbelieving, they would leave here today believing. Thank you, O Lord, for dying on the cross for my sin. Thank you, O Lord, that you broke the power of sin and hold which death has upon us through your resurrection from the dead thank you O Lord that you have promised that those who believe in you will have eternal life and you yourself personally will raise us up on the last day this is why we worship this is why we rejoice you have given us your joy and it has been made complete and full in us So we give you praise, glory, and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.